Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Uh, the episode we're going to endeavor into today is uh, brickwork. Most most brickwork around the world actually started back in England around the 12th century. And it's had a long run of refinement, um, really gaining that refinement in the 18th century, maybe the late 17th century. And uh, more hyper-refinement, let's say, in the mid-19th century with gauged brickwork, you know, actually uh, forming arches and uh, ornamentation and all kind of things using clays and special forms. But we're, we're not going to be there tonight. Tonight we're going to talk about, in general, just brickwork in England, how this all got started. We have um, too many people here, I think, and uh, I'm contacting you right now or coming from southern New Jersey. Uh, and a lot of people make a big play out of the brickwork they see on some of these houses. Who knows, there's 50, 60 of them around, and they have various uh, patterns. They have dates and names, and they call it diapering, and, and uh, we have a lot of people that really build it up. But, uh, you know, the bottom line here is that what I've heard no one say, uh, I've dealt with furniture now for over 35 years, and I come up with certain makers from France, from England, from Rotterdam to, uh, to Geneva, and, and a certain maker or maybe his family make a certain piece of furniture a certain way, or they put a certain flyer on it, a certain carving, a certain inlay. And I, I don't hear anything from these, these individuals that are touting these dates and things on the end of houses. I mean, that's great, it's, it's, it's different, right? But who did them and why did they answer the question? The question, the answer is, at least with you relate it back to the historical materialism as I do with furniture, it was a family that did it. So there was, there was a family of uh, a mason and, and uh, he had a son, he had three sons, four sons, he had extended family. And they, they and it's saying like, they're, they're talking, it's, it's a house near Salem, New Jersey, and then it's up near Piles Grove, another house, it's similar. They're making sound like it's, it's a thousand miles away, it's not. I mean, this was solid woods and isolation, you know, and, and, and sometimes people would say, well, hey, you did it for Billy Joe down the street. I want something a little more elaborate. And, and in the same token, they're saying, well, it was, a, it was a different symbol on this house and a different symbol, crown on that house, a corona here or a corona there. Well, look, a lot of these bricks that they're using for this uh, pattern brick houses are because they're clinkers. They're, they're, they're damaged. They were burnt. So they said, hey, let's make something out of them. So, and they want to know, like, why didn't the peak of the crown match the one a mile down the road? Well, hey, they ran, they ran out of the, uh, the burnt bricks. Seriously. So, like, what's going on here? So we're, I think you have a couple people that are, you know, claiming to be experts in the field. And I'm not sure there is an expert in this kind of field. There's nothing worth being an expert about in this kind of field. But they're over-exemplifying these things. So, uh, anyway... Let's talk about where all these bricks started, and you're going to see pattern brickwork in England that goes back to the bloody 13th century using a diapering pattern, using dates and initials. So what's so special about sitting here in the late 18th century? So I don't know. But anyway, to each his own. Okay. I've often wondered why commenting indiscretion should be indescribed as dropping bricks. The choice of bricks seems quite unaccountable, for it is difficult to think of any substance more respectable. 
It's just a lump of clay, kneaded, molded, given a simple form, rectangular on the face, which, after high temperature baking, could be, and indeed often has been, repeated almost to infamy as the human race has been here. Could anything be more innocuous? Boring even? I don't know. I don't think so. Then one recalls another common idiomatic use. He, or often more she, was a perfect brick. No hint of indiscretion here. The picture is one of strength, reliability, kindness, warmth, and in the care of architecture. For we may find ourselves asking whether some of our older brick buildings do not embody exactly those qualities. And I'm bringing you this information tonight because I was uh, studying uh, a star and, and, and grade one star buildings in England, getting a certification for restoration and conservation. So it was an extensive study of brick structures, you know, how pollution and, and uh, what were the motivations of the individuals that first produced these kind of houses and produced these bricks. How did these bricks become bricks? How did this clay become bricks? But the word derives almost certainly from the French brick, B-R-I-Q-U-E. It did not come into general use until the 15th century. Earlier, the current words were volatile in the Latin tegla. Brick can have a, we shall see, other virtues beside those just indicated. Yet basically, it is a utility material, usually without artistic pretensions. And the large majority of brick buildings, not only in England, but in every brick-using country, attract no attention, either in commendation or in condemnation, for their fabric. Only a small portion is materialistic of fine quality, but so widespread has been the English preference for brick, which during the last three centuries has been far and away uh, one of the most common building materials in the British Isles. That even the small proportion embraces countless of thousands of structures, mainly houses. The long and still persisting popularity of brick is not difficult to explain. In the first place, England is very well provided with suitable clays, which occur in almost every geological formation from the vital deposits of comparatively recent date as far back as the Corfero system, although the shales from the coal mines chiefly associated with Lancashire, Yorkshire, and County Durham and Rabon, just across the Welsh border, could not be used for brickmaking until machines have been invented, capable of breaking up the very hard clay rocks and reducing them eventually to a fine powder. So, that, so after the addition of water, to the required plasticity. More amenable clays have been used by brick, brick makers in many parts of the country for centuries, absolutely centuries, compared with the cost of quarrying and shaping heavy, heavy blocks of stone. Brick manufacture was cheap and brick makers' wages were lower than those of stonemasons. Cartage was far easier and less expensive than might even be unnecessary because it was often possible to dig the clay, set up a small kiln on the site. This is what frequently happened in East Anglia, which is one reason why so many old houses in that part of England are wholly or partially moated, 
or at least have a pond in the garden. Standardization of sizes also helped to reduce cost. It always does, you know, as we know. And I just want to mention something else. We were talking about, you know, this podcast is beaming out to the world tonight from southern New Jersey. Um, There's a lot of people during the bicentennial that faked these pattern brick houses. Even in the 30s and 40s, they faked. It's easy to come up with a glaze, a glaze, a ceramic glaze of a potter. And you could go back and you could paint the bricks at the end of your bloody house. And when you go out and analyze, you microanalyze with various magnifications, you scrape a piece off, you do chemical analysis, you can tell a lot of these houses are faked. So we're not going to get into that tonight. We'll get into the chemistry of that for another lesson. So maybe a lot of the people out there that are claiming they think they have what they have is not what they have, and they should listen to our next podcast on faking of, of bricks. In brick, the opposite is the case. Any departure from the standard size looks wrong. So the size of bricks has varied comparatively little through the centuries. The determining factor has always been a size of a man's hand. Because a brick is is a manufactured article, there's never been a problem about making convenience of handling a prime consideration. So you need to be able to pick the bloody thing up so it's got to fit in a man's hand. It can be bigger or smaller, but it's got to be able to be picked and moved from site or from kiln to, to, to the laying of the brick. The non-combustibility of brick was another factor which worked strongly in its favor. History abounds in records of timber frame built towns being devastated by fire. The most famous instance of all being, of course, the Great Fire of London, as we spoke about in you know, present editions of the, uh, the Historic Preservationist Here podcast, the Great Fire of London in 1666. In the 17th and 18th centuries, the rebuilding was always done largely, if not wholly, in brick, even where there were stone quarries not far away, as in Northamptonshire, Warwick, Blandford, Tiverton, and Wareham, just to name a few. Brick, of course, was ideal for chimney and flues and stacks. And not only timber frame, but also even stone houses often restored to brick for this purpose. As can be well seen in Noble and all, all the other towns of Malsbury and Wiltshire, where nearly all the houses are of stone, but almost every chimney stack is of brick. Comfort was yet another consideration. So listen to this. Being porous, brick is a poor conductor. So a lot of times we don't want something in the fabric of the 18th century, colonial fabrication to be poor conductors. But we do with bricks because it is such a well-built brick house tends to be cool in the summer and warmer in the winter. So it's not letting the free flow of ambient air, cold air, hot air, go through the substrate of the wall, um, such as other materials, you know, including stone. Stone is like a sieve. And a great conductor, so stone's not going to keep your house cool and warm. So in this respect, brick is at the opposite pole from glass and, and actually from wood. This has also been operated in its favor except for avant-garde circles where comfort is seldom the first consideration. Finally, there is the question of durability. Provided the right clays have been used and the methods of manufacture have been correct, 
Bricks may endure for centuries and even outlast many kinds of stone. In particular, brickwork, although it may become grimy and look very unattractive, is impervious to soot and smoke in the atmosphere, which by no means true of most varieties of limestone. This operated very much in the favor of brick in the polluted air of the usual 19th century industrial town. It will, however, be observed that none of these brick properties has anything much to do with that of art. Yet England has produced buildings, especially in the southern and eastern parts of the country, which are perhaps the most beautiful ever made in this material, brick. Clearly, therefore, these practical attributes, important though they be, leave out many of an account of all the elevates of the craft of the brickmaker in its finest manifestations to the status of an art. In this I'm referring to gauge brick, yes. The oldest bricks in England date from the Roman times and bear little or no resemblance to those of later centuries. Roman bricks are broad and thin and usually become what becomes of their thinness. They're very well burnt, which is the main reason why, generally reused, so many have survived. They're like rocks, harder than rocks. Dimensions vary, but most of them are no more than an inch and a half thick, and some as little as one inch. In length and breadth, on the other hand, they may be twice the size of the modern brick so are more com comparable with tiles. This shape suited the principal purpose for which the Romans employed their bricks, which was a bonding of courses introduced at intervals into walls of rubble stone or flint. Although technically, technically good, the Roman product was played, has played no significant part in the story of English brickwork. Probably because the country was so thickly wooded and there was plenty of timber for everyone. Brickmaking ceased with the departure of the Romans and did not little begin again until the latter part of the 13th century. At Little Wenham Hall near Ipswich in Suffolk, a fortified house of about in about the year 1275 circa, flint was used for some of the uh, walling and limestone for the buildings and the dressings. But this is the earliest of our medieval buildings that we have on record, also incorporate a significant quantity of bricks. Incidentally, of several sizes of colors, cream and greenish yellow in greater quantities than the warmer shades. These bricks were almost certainly baked on the site, but their makers may well have been Flemings or Flemish. So remember, you, you at times, when the word got out on the countryside, and that's why we're talking about these, these uh, pattern bricked houses here in southern New Jersey, there were just itinerant people walking around saying, hey, you want to build a house? Or the carpenter said that you want to build a house. I'm your mason. I'm your man. I can even give your initials in the side. So generally, I mean, it's, uh, I really have to think this is one family. And, and some have said that this could have been a competition of you know, maybe these 20 different of the better pattern brick houses, competition of, of different religions. I said, really? I mean, you're, you're putting on the end of your house of, uh, in, a, in a corona form and a date and, and uh, that, that this is your religion, you're Catholic, you're Protestant, you're this, you're that. I don't think so. But uh, 
from that time onwards, um, through seven centuries, the story of brickwork in England has been one of ever-increasing demand. Although for 400 years, from the end of the 13th century to the last quarter of the 17th century, progress by no means specular. During this long period, brick was hardly ever used for cottages and seldom even for smaller townhouses. Nor was it at all equally distributed across the country. A map showing the location of brick buildings of earlier date than 1550 reveals that over half of them are in Norfolk, Suffolk, or Essex, and that nearly all, or at least, of the line drawn from the Humber to the Solent. So the Humber and the Solent are two wide-ranging rivers that cut through the Isle of England. The reasons were the relative shortage of buildings of stone. Apart from Flint, in this part of England, and probably also, that was part of the country most familiar with continental practices. By 1550, there was already a long tradition of brick building in the Netherlands and the Hansatic towns. Early bricks were burnt in clamps. These were just big stacks of dry bricks daubed outside with clay. Within were layers of fuel, usually was usually composed of faggots or bundles of brushwood, tree toppings, hedge splashings, and undergrowth generally. Fires were lit from a number of points outside, according to the direction of the wind. In such primitive conditions, it was impossible accurately to estimate the right heat needed for firing. So a great many of the bricks produced in this early time were quite imperfect, some being extremely hard, almost friable, others being crumbling right from the start. And so most were imperfect in one way or another. Often, for instance, the surface of medieval bricks will be found to show creases. These were produced by sand on the surface of clay being sufficiently puddled. The puddling process involved the squeezing and blending to produce a smooth dough to produce the bricks, from which impurities, especially pebbles, all had been removed. Or, again, In the process of firing, one end of the brick might shrink more than the other. This was an irregularity which could be remedied in building by varying the thickness of the mortar. So technical imperfections do not destroy one's pleasure, although early brickwork will often have a homespun look. These variations may serve to add interest to a wall surface. So also with color, Bricks depend for their color on the chemical nature of the clay itself. Most clays contain a certain amount of iron in their composition, which in the process of firing has the effect of staining the clay red. So like we're talking about the Samuel Shivers house, which I'm involved in the sympathetic restoration, iron played a huge part in the color of bricks in Salem County, Cumberland County, Gloucester County, but also the iron ore in the ground when dug out by an itinerant painter produced the the red that the the Samuel Shivers House Museum has painted. So doing chemical research going back to the first quarter of the 18th century, we find 
an enormous amount of, of um, actual iron particles embedded in the board pores. So most clays contain a certain amount of iron in their composition, which in the process of firing has the effect of staining the clay red. This is why so many bricks before the 18th century, nearly all, are some shade of red. White bricks, so-called for the practice they are always pale yellow, buff, or brown, can only be produced naturally when, in addition to iron, the clay contains a relatively high content of lime. Today, lime is sometimes added deliberately. Other minerals occurring in clays and acting as coloring agents in the furnace include manganese and cobalt and sand itself is frequently a coloring agent. Varying the color in bricks are also produced by the process of firing. Even the character of the fuel. So when we have the local yokels who don't really know totally what they talk about, all they can do is tell you on a house tour, say, oh yeah, the pattern on the end of the house was done by burning vitrification. That's all the only word that comes out of their mouth. The character of the fuel, in addition to the type of firing, the severity of firing, the duration of firing, produces these various colors on bricks. So in those early days could make the difference. So the fuel and the duration of the, uh, of the firing. But the chief factor was the degree of heat. Those bricks exposed to the greatest heat would bake to a darker hue and perhaps change color or becoming wholly or partially vitrified. So the vitrification is becoming very friable, very hard due to the process of heat. The bricks were always stacked so that the ends and not the sides were burnt the most. And the gray-blue diamond-shaped diapers, especially characteristic of the early Tudor period, depended on the bricklayers having a sufficient number of burnt ends. It is evident that the supply often ran out, which explains partly at least why Tudor diaperings is usually so irregular. So it's explaining right here, and the English get it right. So the local South Jerseyans need to know this, that these bricks were clinkers, they were mistakes, they were left in the kiln too long, too close to the heat, and Tudor diapering is so irregular and some, some people talk about their diapering as if this was an invention of a bond that happened in South Jersey. Not at all. This goes back to Tudor times, to the 12th century in England. So let's wake up, people. In the Middle Ages, bonding, which means the way at which the bricks are laid. So bonding means pattern, simply put. This was usually and also somewhat haphazard. In the Tudor period, however, a consistent practice was generally adopted, which was to lay the bricks in alternating courses of the stretchers. That is, with only the long side visible on the wall face, and all headers, that is, with only the ends exposed. This is the arrangement known as English bond, which is the course of the 18th century was gradually to give way to Flemish bond, the method of laying bricks with every course consisting of alternating headers and stretchers. The vital consideration was always the avoidance of straight joints, the term usually used to describe what happens 
when there is a vertical joint exactly over another such in the course below. But in addition to this practical reason for bonding, there can be no doubt that the bricks laid in a regular fashion give greater aesthetic pleasure. It was in the secular and especially the domestic sphere that brick first came into its own as a major material for building. So secular and domestic, secular domestic, not ecclesiastical, no. Primarily to limestone for that segment. There is only a handful of pre-Reformation brick churches. The best are Shelton in Norfolk, a small but choice example, uh, built around eight, uh, 1485 to 90, Lutton in Lincolnshire, and East Hunden, Layer Marley, and Clignell Sneely, all in Essex. So again, these are in a certain region, so they, they tended to, uh, were doing in the south, telling to do brick, brick work there on their churches. This country also has some Tudor porches, of which the, the one at Sandon is among the finest, and more than 20 brick towers, Sandon again being a handsome example, although in Gatestone, which is still more imposing. Brick was, in fact, employed at several much grander churches than these, for the vault web of the nave of Beverly Minster was as early as the second quarter of the 14th century for the spire of Norwich Cathedral in the 1480s, and for Ball Harry, the central tower of Canterbury Cathedral, a decade or so later. But although the bricks are still there, nearly half a million of them at Canterbury, few people are aware of it. For at Beverly, they were plastered over, and at both ends of the cathedral, they were faced with limestone. The one big church at which despite renewals, plenty of medieval brickwork is still in evidence, is Holy Trinity in Hall. The chancel and transcripts built between 1315 and 1345 are the earliest examples in the country of brick architecture on anything of a scale as lavish as this. Nearly all of the best examples of secular and domestic architecture of pre-Reformation date in brick, or in the east and southeast. To the reign of Henry the Sixth, belonged to Hesmosho Castle, now the Royal Observatory, a grand house, and Tattershall Castle in Lincolnshire, notable for the high quality of its brick craftsmanship. But unfortunately, all that survives there are the tremendous towers and the attractive little gatehouses, the bricks vary in size, but the average is small, about 8 inches times 4 inches by 2 inches. Not long after, another enormous brick tower, more French in aspect, arose in Falkborn in Essex. The spiral stair here has a molded handrail of circular section continued up to the very top, so they made a circular handrail out of brick in the entire circulatory of the tower, 120 feet high, and an excellent tunnel vault as well. Although the chapel walls were of stone, brick was the principal material employed in Eton College, founded by King Henry in 1440, and at Cambridge, several co colleges, of which Queen's was the first, were being built in brick before the end of the 15th century. So the stage was set, 
for the erection in brick under Henry VIII of the largest house in England at that time, Hampton Court Palace, all of brick. At Tattershall, Ralph Cromwell's master bricklayer had been a German brought over specially for the job. But before the end of the century, English brick makers were given many opportunities of displaying their skill. For although brick may be thought to have imposed various limitations in the direction of plainness, the grander clients were no more willing to chew finish in brick than they were in stone. A gentleman's house, whether in stone or now in brick, was expected to have properly molded window mullions and transoms, labels or dripstones above the windows, which would not only be molded out in the best examples, drop down a few inches at either side of each window, and often neatly returned. Molded frames to the doorway arches, and often more ornamental spandrels, for example. Nicely rounded copings to the battlements of gables, and even shrunk panels in the walls, crowned by triplets of cusped arches, all of these in brick. Sometimes, at a Lee's Prairie in Essex, erected in 1536 to 1537, on a monastic site by a lawyer appropriately surnamed Rich, these dressings were all of stone. The Splendor Inner Gatehouse exhibits, according to Miss Jane Wright, uniquely complex diapering in brick blue. Different sizes of diamonds are supplemented by zigzags, hearts, crosses, checkers, and shades like candlebra and Chinese lanterns. But elsewhere, the brickmakers had to learn how to supply all these requirements, and they would appear to have done this with surprising speed. The gatehouse at Esther Place, now known as Wayfleet Tower, which is all that survives of a house built by Bishop Wayfleet of Winchester about 17, 1475 to 1480, was a spiral staircase walled with slightly brownish red headers and another finely molded handrail carried out entirely in brick. So has the wonderful gatehouse of Oxbell Hall in Norfolk, dating to 1482, which is, again, all that remains of the original house. Both of these staircase vaults in Plowshare forms achieved mainly with stretchers are extremely accomplishment for this early date of brick bonding. Some of these ornamental details were so elaborate that they had to be specially prepared, and the aid of aid first of a brick axe to reach an approximation of the required shape, and then the laborious rubbing, but wherever possible, wooden molds were employed. If the need was for a quantity of bricks of identical section, this would be much easier and, and least expensive method of making them. No more beautiful example was this ornament, ornamental brickwork that can be seen on one of the outer face of the little gatehouse at Guilford's Hall at Stoke-by-Nayland in Suffolk. The most spectacular achievements in brick under Henry VIII were the chimney stacks. These are, of course, particularly vulnerable to the weather. And, of, and a good many, including all those at Hampton Court, have had to been rebuilt. But a certain number of fine originals still survive.
There are many different shapes, octagons, hexagons, squares, circles, or even spirals. And that is not all, for their surfaces are often adorned with designs and relief. These are also very varied. Among them are zigzags, lozenges, diamonds, quatrefoils, honeycombs, Tudor roses, and fleur-de-lis. Here again, wherever possible, they made molds, but it was obvious, uneconomic to make a mold for so elaborate and special a detail as the Stafford Knot at Thornsbury Castle in Gloucestershire. So was this carved. Usually, however, the various mold, molded pieces were carefully fitted together as the chimney stack went up, as can be clearly seen by those in view of the inner gatehouse chimneys at Lay Prairie. Every shaft stands upon a molded base and has a projecting cap analogous with a capital that crowns a stone column. Specially thin bricks had to be made for the necking and also for the spurs, which can frequently be seen, though not at Lee's Prairie, projecting from the angles. Some shafts stand in isolation, but they often are grouped in pairs or fours, and occasionally in greater numbers at East, East Barsham Manor in Norfolk, where they are used in terracotta. There is one group of ten, terracotta from the Latin terra meaning cotta, meaning cooked earth. It is a term employed from some, somewhat loosely to describe clay of fine consistency mixed with sand and fired to a rock hardness and compactness seldom attained by brick. Under Elizabeth I and James I, some large brick houses, as well as many small, were built mainly or solely of brick. Doddington Hall near, near Lincoln, Burton Constable, <coughs> and Burton Agnes Hall in the East Riding, Bramble House in Hampshire, Hatfield House, and Herefordshire, Queensbury Hall in Lancashire, Eston Hall, Birmingham, and Brickling Hall in Norfolk are among the most outstanding examples. But despite their size, there was a, a revision to a greater sobriety in the handling of the brickwork. The north front of Hatford House, for example, is of studied severity and aesthetically all more impressive. Surely, on that account, we can understand why this elevation appeals greatly to some architects today for studying those architects that are just starting out. It was not until the reign of Charles I that the new phase of exuberance developed. And this is seen in a group of houses, um, none of them are mansions, built in what Sir John Summerin has aptly termed the artisan manor style. These buildings among the most important are the Dutch House in Kew Gardens, Broom Park in Kent, Cromwell House in Highgate, and although not built until 1654, Titan Hanger in Herefordshire, do certainly display some remarkable feats in the handling of molding and carved brickwork. The Dutch House, for example, has elaborately molded cornices separating every story, a tall centerpiece formed by pilasters with capitals, curved gables with molded copings, and at the apex of the gables, curved or triangular pediments, 
deeply molded for these dressings, especially fine, soft bricks were required, which could be rubbed and cut so precisely that some of the joints were scarcely visible. This was known as gauged brickwork, as we just talked earlier, and it was first developed in the Netherlands. The Dutch house was built in 1631, is our earliest example of it, but it really reached its zenith in the 19th century. Molds were used wherever feasible, but special features like the iconic and Corinthian capitals of the front had all to be carved. Broom, Broom Park, which is a good deal larger than the Dutch house and has much more of the elaborate gables, is in several respects a still more remarkable example. This is the virtuosity of the handling of brick. Cromwell House is a fantastic central window set within a lugged architrave with scrolled consoles, all, it would seem, carved on the spot. But in other respects, the front of this house has more classical restraint than the others, and some may feel it is the better for it. At Tidinger Hangar, the frame of the central window has a segmented pediment, but is otherwise closely similar. So we've, we've pulled in a lot of, of brickwork, how they were made, where they were from, um, chronological dates of how certain bricks were used, and some just exponentially phenomenal examples of, of British dwellings made by bricks. So I think we're going to end it here for this segment tonight, and uh, we're going to pick up British or English brickwork later on uh, for the next podcast to continue with this because it's getting a little detailed now. So let's uh, let, let everybody's mind take a rest. So Greg Perry uh, signing out, the historic preservationist. <laughs>